In just a moment, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 through 18. So you can start turning there in your Bibles now, if you brought your own copy with you. You can also find the full text in the digital version of the bulletin. And you're also welcome to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you as we follow along together. In short, the passage we're about to read is a message about the Christian's hope. The Christian's hope that is rooted in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the coming resurrection that flows out of Jesus' resurrection for all of those who trust in him. The tricky thing is the biblical concept of hope is not very well served by our English language. Uh, Very often when we use the word hope, we have like a vague uncertainty in mind. We're merely expressing a wish for the future. I hope that the Florida Gators will turn around their football season. (laughs) And it might be unlikely. But in the Bible, hope is very different. The pastor, Tim Keller, who passed away recently, he put it this way, hope in the Bible is a joy-filled certainty, a life-shaping, joyous certainty that our eternity, our eternal future, is God's love and his glory in a new heavens and a new earth. So we're going to be thinking about that life-shaping certainty a lot this morning, but let's start by looking at God's word together from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 through 18. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please pray with me? Father, we all stand before you as your creatures, and as sinners in need of redemption. But as much as we have in common, there are a lot of differences in the room. Some of us show up this morning needing confrontation and rebuke. Some of us show up this morning needing comfort and a promise of hope. God, as we come together before you and listen to your word, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us according to your need, our needs, that you would take up the sword of your word and divide our spirits, that you would take up the fiery hammer of your word and break our hard hearts, that it would be a lamp to our feet, and that 
In this time we spend together, we might see in a new way the brightness of your glory that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Do all these things now through your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If we are going to understand the Christian's hope this morning, which is our goal, we actually, I'm sorry to tell you, need to start by understanding sin. Because the hope of the Christian, the hope that is presented to us in this passage is not an abstract hope, it's real. And because it's real, it meets us in our very real needs. The Bible teaches a lot of things about our sin, but I want to remind you of three really important things to paint a dark backdrop so that the the bright hope of this passage will be more evident to us. First, the Bible teaches that our sin separates us from relationship with God. It isolates us. Second, our sin, in the words of St. Augustine, curves us inward on ourselves, that though God made us for lives of expansive love towards him and others, sin makes us selfish. And third, though God has created us to find our all in him, to worship him, sin leads us to find our all, our hope, our satisfaction in every corner of the creation, in every place other than where it can actually be found. That's the bad news that we need to remember this morning. But the good news is that though the gospel is not just about your needs, it's more than that, God has provided for you in Jesus a hope that meets us in these very needs. That in Jesus, in the hope that God has provided our isolation because of sin can be turned into integration. Our hearts that are selfish can be turned into hearts of love towards God and others. And our false worship, our idolatry can be turned into praise. So to see that together this morning, we're going to see three different aspects of hope in our passage. First, we're going to see that our hope is corporate. Second, our hope is current. And third, our hope is concrete. So you have that outline in front of you if you find that helpful. First, our hope is corporate. We see in response to the isolating consequence of sin in our lives, God offers us a hope that gathers, that unifies, that is corporate. So the Apostle Paul, who's the author of this letter, he knows a thing or two about the divisive potentialities of sin. When you read his first letter to this ancient group of believers, the Corinthians, you find out that this church was divided left and right. That sin was wreaking havoc in their community. You can go back and read 1 Corinthians later if you'd like. You'll you'll read about factions in the church. You'll read about people literally getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You'll read about these people who are neglecting the poor among them. Paul and these Corinthian believers, they know a thing or two about the divisive power of sin. But even this letter that Paul is writing to these believers is reflective of this difficult reality that shapes all of our lives. If you keep reading the letter of 2 Corinthians, you learn that Paul is in this awkward position 
of having to defend his calling from the Lord to these believers. See, Paul came in and he ministered to these people. And then after he left, other leaders came in. Other leaders who claimed to be apostles, but who started bad-mouthing Paul for his manner of ministry. And these Corinthians, some of them had already, in one way or another, stabbed Paul in the back, and others were tempted to do the same. So Paul is well acquainted with the divisive power of sin. And if there was any church in the pages of the New Testament that resembles the polarized and divided society in which we currently live, I think it would be the church in Corinth. And it's in light of that sad and dark reality that Paul extends this hope to these people, this hope that is corporate. Where do we see that in this passage? We see it right out of the gate in verse 13, when Paul says that his faith is the same faith. What's implied there? It's a faith that is shared Now, there's actually some ambiguity in the passage as to whether this shared faith, the same faith that Paul has, is a faith that he shares with the Corinthian believers he's writing to, or to the author of Psalm 116, which he quotes in the next breath. But really, either way, the point is the same. The faith that Paul has, the confidence he has, even in the middle of great suffering, he describes that suffering in the passage right before the one that we read. It is a faith that is shared. What does this mean for us? It's a reminder yet again that the Christian life is always about personal connection with God, but it is also always about connection with God's people. But the argument is strengthened when we turn to that quote from Psalm 116 that I mentioned. It says, I believed and so I spoke. Belief Think about it for a moment. Belief is something that is internal. Hypothetically, you can imagine with me for a moment, hypothetically, someone could have a real confidence in God because of his promises. They could have a real trust in Jesus. They could say, I believe, and hypothetically, no one else could know about it. Yet in reality, in the Bible, there's no category for a believer like that. The internal belief always goes public. The I believe always becomes, and so I spoke. And because faith goes public, because it's something that is not just between us and God, but also between us and one another, it is something that is corporate. But again, notice where Paul goes after this. He says his confidence is not based on God in the abstract, but in the concrete. Look at what it says in verse 14. His hope is based on the resurrection. He believes and he speaks. His faith that is internal becomes external expression because he knows that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We see here two more ways that this hope is corporate. It is a hope that is with Jesus And it is a hope that is with God's people. So sin isolates us, separates us from God and from one another. It causes divisions. It did that in the Corinthians' day and for you and me. But the hope of the gospel unifies us. 
It is because we are with Jesus in his resurrection, and one day we'll be presented with Jesus before the Father at the last day when we receive our resurrected bodies. Because that is true, we can have a confidence that is unwavering, that we will be accepted and loved and welcomed into the eternal life that God is preparing for all who believe. But we also need to recognize that this hope is corporate because our future hope is not just me before God, although no one can believe for you, but me and all of God's people in God's place together. So I hope you're tracking with me through this passage as we understand Paul's logic and how the hope of the gospel can transform the isolation of our sin. But now you might be asking the question, what does it actually look like to live as if this is true? And I'm glad you asked. There are a lot of different ways that we could answer that question, but I I want to mention uh, just one for a moment. To borrow the language of one of my friends, If our hope is corporate, that means we can pursue that hope together. So, stop going on a sin hunt and start going on a grace hunt. What do I mean by that? Believe it or not, the people sitting in the pews next to you this morning, or in the comfy chairs in the back, are sinners. The Bible says that. It's important for us to remember. We should never forget that that's true. But actually, it's not that difficult to figure out that the people sitting next to us are sinners. And in our day and age of cancel culture, which transcends political spectrums and is is seemingly influential in every part of our society, Christians have an opportunity to not just be people that are on a hunt for the skeletons in someone's closet, but to be on a hunt for buried treasure. Uh, The pastor Tim Keller describes marriage as two people, a man and a woman, walking side by side in a heavenly direction. He describes marriage in light of Ephesians 5, and I think this is helpful and true, as two people who are committed together to growing into the glorious selves that God has destined for them. You've seen a little bit of the glory that God has determined for this person, and and you want to join them in getting there. Well, that, that is uniquely true of marriage, but it's also true in friendship. It's also true in the church. So I want to ask you, if you're here this morning as a believer in Jesus, I presume that you're in community to some degree or another with other believers, what would it look like for you to be on the lookout for the ways that the image of God, fundamentally, but but even the renewing work of the Holy Spirit is evident in the lives of others. What would it look like for us to join hands together in pursuing this glorious destination that God has for his people? I I encourage you to, to be looking for that, even this week, and to be finding ways to share what you see with those that you love, so we can spur one another on in our repentance and in our growth towards that purpose. Our hope is corporate, so we pursue it together. Second, our hope is current. What do I mean by that? I mean that in the gospel, our future hope is actually invading our present. The Bible teaches that new creation has come in Jesus Christ. It has come and it is coming. 
And the biblical scholar F.F. Bruce, using important biblical terminology, he, he put it this way. He said, sanctification, the process of growing into the image of Jesus, sanctification is glory begun. Glory, where, where we're destined to be made perfectly in the image of Jesus and enjoy God's new creation forever and ever, glory is sanctification completed. Sanctification is glory begun. Glory is sanctification completed. Why does that matter? It matters because we see in light of this passage, there is an organic relationship between the future hope that is certain for all those who trust in Jesus and the ways that God is working in your life right now. Remember, our sin, it curves us inward. But the hope of the gospel that is currently at work, it can curve us outward in love towards God and others. Where do we see that? Well, look at Paul's example again. Remember, Paul is writing to a group of believers who have stabbed him in the back or attempted to stab him in the back. And what does he say to them? He says in verse 15, as he's reflecting on the sufferings that have arisen in his ministry, all of these things, that's what that word all is referring to, all of these sufferings in Paul's life, he says it is all for your sake. It is all for the sake of the very people that have not been faithful to him. They've sinned against Paul, and some of their sin is some of the reason for some of Paul's suffering. And yet the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus and this future coming resurrection for him is so real, it's so current in Paul's life that he's able to say, it is all for your sake. This verse 15 is situated in verse 14. Paul is only able to do this because the resurrection is true. His hope is currently transforming the way that he thinks about his circumstances and even some of the hardest things in his life. Now, Paul is not suffering in the place of sinners. Only Jesus does that. And he's not glorifying his suffering either, pretending that it's not really hard. But he is enabled to see, because of the hope of the resurrection, he's enabled to see his suffering as a vehicle for the blessing of others, as an opportunity for God's grace to extend to more and more so that thanksgiving would abound. Jesus, of course, is the true and better Paul, who not only suffers to give us a good example, but suffered to take away the guilt of our sin. So what can we take away from this section for our own lives? Well, Paul saw something that we all need to see. In God's economy, because of our coming hope, none of your suffering is wasted. You might not always understand it. It might not be that you have neat and tidy answers right now or maybe even ever in this life as to why you are suffering in the ways that you are as you fight your own sin and just live in a broken world. But we can be confident that none of our suffering is wasted. 
Next, look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Get this. Not only has the hope of the gospel freed Paul to see that the sufferings that have arisen because of his ministry can become a vehicle of blessing to others. Paul actually takes that same hope and applies it to something that is inescapable in the human condition, the challenge of aging. He's recognizing that in in part because of his suffering, in part because of just what it means to be human. His body is decaying. One day he will go down into the dust, and yet he can approach that coming day with a confidence and a joy. Why? Though his outer self is wasting away, his inner self is being renewed day by day. The hope has become current for him. We sang earlier about how Jesus has conquered death. It no longer has sting for the Christian. That doesn't mean it's not awful and we shouldn't weep and mourn and long for the day when death will be gone forever, but Jesus has taken the power from death in his resurrection. Isn't it amazing that he hasn't just done that, but in his resurrection, Jesus has transformed even the process of our aging into a vehicle by which our inner spirits can be renewed day by day. Let me put it this way. If your hope is in Christ and in the coming resurrection, the physical decay that is inevitable in this life can become for you the Father's invitation to be weaned from dependence on this world and the things that cannot last and to have a deeper and fuller joy that can never be taken from you. I want to recognize, though, that many of us at different points in our Christian lives, some of you maybe even here this morning, might wonder, where is the inner renewal, right? The physical uh, decay might be pretty evident for some of us, maybe more than others. But where is the inner renewal? Where is it happening? I I want to be so much more than what I am right now. So I want to ask you a few questions that will hopefully be helpful as you evaluate that question. First, pay attention to your longings, to your desires. Do you want the circumstances in your life, even the hard ones, to become a blessing to others? Do you desire to share the hope that you have like Paul is doing? His internal belief is becoming public expression. Do you desire to do that even if you struggle to know how? Is your heart lifted up like Paul's heart is lifted up when you hear about the mighty work of God in someone else's life? Here's why I ask those questions. There's really two reasons. One, if your honest answer to those questions is no, I want to lovingly challenge you that your hope might not actually be in Jesus. It might not actually be in the hope that he provides, but in something else in God's creation. And I want to invite you to repent and to trust in Jesus because there's no greater hope that can be found than in him. But I know for many of you, you answered yes to those questions in your hearts. Even even if it's imperfectly, those are desires that God has given you. And, And for those of you that are feeling discouraged in your walk with God, I want to remind you, again, of what F.F. Bruce said. Sanctification is glory begun. Right now, the glory in your heart, the glory in your life, the evident renewal might not seem that drastic, but it is in seed form 
that will one day grow into the beautiful tree of you perfectly resembling the Lord Jesus. So don't be discouraged that you haven't yet arrived, but celebrate what God is doing in you now and savor Jesus more because of it. Because as we savor him more and the current hope he's providing, then we are enabled to go and share about that love and that hope with others in words and in deeds in our lives. Our hope is corporate, so we can be rescued from the isolation of our sin. Our hope is current, so we can actually be turned outwards again in love towards God and others. Here's the last thing. Our hope is concrete, so we can be rescued from our idolatry. Uh, The sad reality is so many things are working against us as people who are trying to put our hope in things that we cannot see. The unseen that Paul talks about in the last verse. The truth is that problem in the human condition goes all the way back to the garden where Adam and Eve placed their hope in what they could see rather than putting their faith in God's word. But we live in a day and age, I don't think I even need to tell you, of instant gratification and constant entertainment so that we as a culture might be especially shaped away from placing our hope in the things that we cannot see. So how do you know where you're looking to for hope? How do you know what some of the idols are in your life? Well, you could ask yourself a question like this. How do I know where I'm looking to for hope? Where am I looking for change in my life? Where am I looking for answers to my problems? Where am I looking for comfort in the middle of this life's suffering? Maybe it's a really important person in your life that if you're honest, you would say something like, I need this person. I cannot live without them. Maybe it's a physical pleasure, a delicious meal, sexual satisfaction. It could be a certain medication or procedure or nutrition plan or workout regimen that will finally rescue from either bodily discomfort or bodily insecurity. Uh, For many of you, like me, this often becomes clear in the ways that we, we think the grass is always greener. We're always thinking about the future, right? We think that I'll be happy, I'll be content when I get married or when I land the secure job or when I have my first child or for some of you, when your last child moves out of the house. Our hopes, the things we look to for change, for answer, for comfort in the middle of our suffering, it points us to our idols. And if we're honest, if we ask ourselves, why do we do this? Well, it's because these answers, these comforts, they seem more real. They seem more definite. They seem more reliable than what we can't see. But Paul is writing this in part to prove to us that the coming hope that is ours in Jesus, if you trust in him, that is what is concrete. That is what is really real. Not because this world is an illusion, not because your circumstances don't matter to God, but because what is coming is so lasting, so enduring, so concrete that by comparison, the things of this world that we often find ourselves obsessing about are like mere shadows. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. 
He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we hear these words, we need to remember that Paul is not some happy-go-lucky, pie-in-the-sky kind of guy. If you look at his life, you learn that he was imprisoned, that he was beaten, that he was flogged, that he was stoned, that he was shipwrecked, and at the end of it all, he was put to death for his faith in Jesus. So don't hear these as empty words, but as someone who's well acquainted with the difficulty of the human condition. But here's the even better news. The Bible tells you that God is well acquainted with our frame. He knows us intimately. And that God the Son came as a man in Jesus Christ to be the man of sorrows, to be well acquainted with our grief and our suffering. So we can hear these words not as like a pie in the sky, let's just hope things are going to be better kind of wish dream, but as the hope of the gospel that meets us in the very reality of our experiences. Think about it. Very often, when we're in the middle of our suffering, it feels heavy. That's what feels weighty and concrete, sometimes unbearably so. When we're in the middle of our suffering, sometimes it feels like it is going to last forever. God knows that. Paul knew that. But what, what do we say? What does he say to us here? That which seems unbearable one day will seem light by comparison. That which seems boundless in our lives will one day feel like it was just a moment. The future hope of the gospel that is concrete, it doesn't make our circumstances irrelevant, but it does enable us to see and to believe and to live as if they are not ultimate. Our hope is concrete for many reasons, But here's a really important one. The Christian hope that this passage puts on display is not just a rescued soul, but a resurrected body. It's not just that sinners are being turned into saints, but one day God is going to transform this whole creation. Some of you kids have the uh, drawing board in front of you, and you're, you're coloring a picture of something that reminds you of this lasting new creation that God has for us. And the resurrected body of Jesus Christ that we read about in this passage, it is the first fruits of what is to come. It's the pattern of the new creation. One day we will inhabit a new creation where death and suffering and sin and sadness will be gone forever. Mere memories, light and momentary affliction. A number of years ago, John Roderick who's the front man of an indie rock band called The Long Winters. And his producer were working on a new album together. And as they were working on this album, they brought in uh, an outside drummer who's not usually a part of the group. And the drummer uh, had quite the reputation. Uh, He was very well respected in the industry. But as soon as he shows up to the studio to help with this album, things begin to get weird. Uh, They'd never seen someone recording like this man was doing. He had different pieces of percussion kind of spread out in the studio, and he would go over to one piece of percussion and, like, 
hit a drum line and then go somewhere else and hit another. And it just sounded like noise. It sounded random. It sounded meaningless. And John Roderick and his producer are starting to get pretty concerned. But then the drummer, he, he comes into the sound room and he lays all these different tracks on top of each other. And then he hits play. And in retrospect, John Roderick says that it was magic. They were hearing these isolated tracks that just seemed like noise, that seemed meaningless. But in that moment, they learned that there was a mastermind who was behind it all. Friends, the sin in your life that leads you to run from the Father's home, that curves you inward on yourself, that leads you to worship the creation rather than the creator, it is a hard battle to resist that sin, especially over the course of a long life. The suffering in your life might sometimes seem like noise, like it's meaningless. Our anxiety and our shame and our loneliness, we might ask, God, what are you doing with all this? But the hope of this passage is one day God is going to lay all the tracks on top of one another, and he's going to hit play. And on that day, we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, it was light and momentary affliction compared with the weight of glory that was being prepared for us. It's not all going to make sense in this life. We're waiting for that day to come when we'll see the bigger picture. We'll join in the delight of the mastermind. But even now, we can hold on to this faith and this hope and this love with Paul because Jesus is risen from the dead and one day all those who trust in him will join him in his resurrection life. Would you please pray with me? Father, I thank you for this hope. I ask that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that each of us would be helped by this hope to feel again the warmth of your embrace, to lead lives of expansive love, to praise you for all that you are. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.